are in Acts chapter 2. Thank you again to our worship team, to Frankie up in the booth, Rob Graham, who's been, who patrols around the building here and keeps an eye on things, 10 of us here in keeping with the, what we are supposed to be doing. Um, grateful for each of you that have come to help. Grateful for the technology that we have, that we as a body of believers are, are at least remotely joined together as we study scripture together. We are in Acts chapter 2, questions. We live in a world that is filled with questions, and technology gives that illusion that there are answers to most of these questions. In fact, I can say, hey Google, or hey Siri, or Alexa, I probably just set off some of your voice-activated devices just by saying that. And, and I can ask my question and get an answer, at least presumably. They can just answer my question just like that. Google says that, that worldwide, on average, there are 7 billion, with a B, searches each day on Google, people asking questions, searching for things. Maybe now, more than at any other moment in our lifetimes, people are asking questions questions, an unimaginable sense of questions, that global sense of uncertainty and, and fear. When will this stop? What will normal look like? For some, how am I going to pay my bills? What's going to happen to someone I love who is sick? What about my parents? What about my children? And on and on. When we left off last week in Acts chapter 2, it was a question. It was a question that a crowd was asking, trying to understand something. A large and growing number of Jewish pilgrims were in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and they had been drawn together by the sound of a violent wind. It, it had attracted them to a place, and when they got there, they saw these individual flames hovering over a group of people. And then they heard what was in different languages talk of the wondrous works of God. They heard men who were known to be followers of Jesus when he was alive. They were known to be his disciples, and now they were speaking languages that they suddenly had the capacity for that they couldn't possibly have learned. And for all of these people, there are questions. How can this be? What they heard and saw and experienced was largely inexplicable. And so in Acts 2.12, it says of the crowd, they all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? There's the question. What does this mean? That's what the title of the sermon, hopefully you see online there. There's a copy of the notes if you want to follow along as well. All of this stuff is happening, and we can't figure it out. And so they're asking each other, what's going on? You and I encounter people all the time with, with big life questions, like what does this mean? Not just during this global pandemic, God, as people in our lives who are trying to understand what is this about? What's happening? What is the meaning of life? Maybe they've read a book or they've watched a TV show or they've asked a friend. And let me suggest to you that here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see a model for answering that that big life question, how to respond to what does this mean? Peter's going to show us one way of answering that question, and I want to submit to you that this is a model way of approaching it. Now, we're going to deal with some doctrinal issues as we've been in, in these early chapters of Acts. 
along the way, but that's the heart of what we're going to get at is how Peter goes about answering what does this mean and how that's a model for you and I. So Acts chapter 2, let me begin in verse 12 just to set the context. We know all that they have seen and heard, and it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And then just verse 22 is our last one. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Stop there. To set the scene again, this is in Jerusalem, crowded with pilgrims coming for this spring harvest feast called Pentecost. And they are there to to worship, to give offerings, and the Holy Spirit comes. And he comes from heaven, and he comes upon and into the followers of Jesus, to the, the 12 apostles. And they begin to speak, it tells us previously, of the wondrous works of God. That Down in verse 11, the mighty works of God they are hearing about in different languages that were native to where these pilgrims came from, lands where they had come from. And so they are hearing this, and the mix of languages is causing some to think that this is just chaos. And so they they sort of propose there in verse 13 that this is just drunkenness, that this is just sort of a chaotic stupor. Peter stands up as the spokesman, and he says, listen, Let's, let's clear this up first. None of these men is drunk. It's nine in the morning. That's what he means by the third hour of the day. Starts at sunrise at six. And so nobody here is drunk. But you have a question. And the question is, what does this mean? And so let me help you think about that. I'll tell you what this means. What is happening, what you are seeing, was foretold about 800 years earlier, through the prophet Joel. Your ancestors read about what we are now seeing happen when they read the prophet Joel. Now, we don't know much about the prophet Joel other than the book in the Old Testament that is attributed to him. He delivered this prophecy during a time that most would call a natural disaster in the region of Judah. It was a plague of locusts. That's what Judah is, is, uh, Joel is writing to. He's writing to Judah that has been decimated by locusts. They have come in a way that people had never before seen. 
waves and waves of locusts over everything on the land. They lay it bare. They, they devastate the crops and the people are left and they are in famine. And so God speaks through Joel to say, first, this is his judgment on them. He wants them to understand that what's happening with the locust invasion on Judah is in response to their wickedness and their rebellion, their rampant injustice and violence and idolatry, and they are being punished. The Jewish people had turned away from their God, and God responded by bringing famine on them through these locusts. But he didn't abandon them in their anguish. He doesn't simply punish. God also commands them to repent. And so in Joel 1.14, it says, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. God doesn't merely punish them. He calls on them and says, Here's what you are to do. Gather together, fast, pray, and cry out to me. The same God who is punishing your sin is also the God who gives joy and gladness. And so Joel 2.13, later in the book, says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So here is what's happening in Joel. There is this devastating judgment of God. God then speaks through Joel and says, but there's hope. Turn from your sin. Come to God. Cry out to God. He is gracious. He is merciful. And he desires to forgive and restore if you will call on him. It's in that context then that Joel in Joel 2.28 begins the passage that Peter then brings to bear in Pentecost. So that's that's the message from the Old Testament that, that Peter has been led to, has been evidently meditating on. And now as he's preaching, he turns to Joel 2.28 and, and he changes one part of Joel's prophecy. Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. Peter starts and says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel had said afterward, after after there's repentance, after people cry out to the Lord, after that will come the pouring out of the Spirit. Peter then changes and says, and in the last days it shall be, and he adds the words God declares to make it clear that this is not just Peter offering his interpretation of Joel, this is God speaking. God says, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. There's a couple things. In, in, in this passage that, that we should catch in terms of days, he starts, and in the last days, plural. The, the, the idea of the last day, singular, is, is a New Testament phrase. Jesus introduces and begins to speak of the last day, mostly in the Gospel of John. And, and Jesus is largely referring to his return, to the day when he returns and the bodies of the dead are resurrected. And so it is still a a future day for us. And so when Jesus speaks of the last day, he is speaking of that day of resurrection that is yet to come. Peter, though, speaks of the last days, plural, here in verse 17. He'll talk about that last day down in, in verse 20. We'll come to that. But plural here, he makes this a present reality. We are in the last days, and in the last days, in other words, what you're seeing here now is God doing this, therefore this is the last days. 
There is a future last day. Verse 20, he speaks of the day of the Lord that is coming and, and this significant day when the Lord returns and he judges the world and he rescues his people, that day when God's rule over the earth becomes clear to all, that, that day is still to come, but the last days have already arrived. We get some help on this from the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews starts in chapter 1 and says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, by by men like Joel. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In God's eternal plan to save a people for himself, the last days is sort of like the final chapter that precedes eternity. We still have all of eternity before us, but the last days looks at sort of this last part of God's redemptive work here on earth. You, you could start that in the opening chapter with God creating the universe, and, and all in it is good, and making man in his image. That's the beginning, but then what does man do? He sins, and he rebels, and he falls into judgment, and God then provides a way of redemption and forgiveness by the sending of his Son, Jesus Christ. It is the coming of the Son, the coming of Jesus, that inaugurates the last days of God's redemptive program. That is the sign that we are now in the last days. It's not all of the, the, the sometimes end times signs that some will try to look at in Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation and say, well, the last days, sort of as if they're still to come. We have been in the last days since the coming of Jesus. It is the, the last part of God's redemptive program before we spend eternity with him. And within those last days are the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and the birth of the church so that we are in those last days. We are here remaining in those days, and they will culminate with the return of Jesus Christ. For those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, his return will be glorious. Peter speaks in verse 20 of this great and magnificent day, this, this day when our ultimate redemption is experienced and the resurrection of the, the bodies of brothers and sisters who have gone before us. That is the, the great day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ. For those in the world who have rejected Jesus as Savior, his return will be the day of the Lord as it is described over and over again, starting back in the Old Testament, when that phrase, the day of the Lord, signifies God's righteous judgment. Because he is mighty and he is sinless and he is over all, the day of the Lord is when he will bring his judgment to bear on the earth. For us, though, it will be our Savior's return. So what Peter is Describing here in, in Acts 2, as he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, is a mix of, of these last days all the way to last day sort of things. Things that are some being fulfilled in that moment on Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. Some that are still signs of things to come at the return of Jesus. But what, what started it all in this moment, what Peter has pointed it back to is the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus ascended, the Spirit has come, he has been poured out on his people. No longer would the Spirit of God simply come on specific people at points in history for specific ministries as we see throughout the Old Testament. 
Now, with the ascension of Jesus Christ, Peter now tells us the Holy Spirit has come upon his people. The the ascension of Jesus Christ is what, what changes all this. Peter will tell us later in this message that Jesus is then exalted to the right hand of God. And from there, he sends his spirit onto his disciples. But there's an emphasis here that we can't miss. If you look again at verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. God declares, and that's how Peter starts this, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he very specifically distinguishes male, female, young, old, slave, free. And though he doesn't say it here, coming up in a very short time, the spirit will be poured out across ethnic lines as well. It will go beyond the Jews and to Gentiles and to nations all over. It's much like what Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He qualifies all Down in verses 21 and 22, he's very clear. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's going to be specific about this. He's not saying all in the sense of every individual will now receive the Holy Spirit. He's saying all in the sense that man, woman, slave, free, in fact, Jew, Gentile, young, old, all now will become recipients, all who call on the name of the Lord of Jesus, will now receive the Holy Spirit and be empowered and equipped to serve as witnesses of Jesus Christ. In John 16, Jesus helped us understand what this looks like. In John 16, Jesus is promising his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and and what they can anticipate. And it it addresses really what this prophesying is that Peter speaks of when he says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And again, in verse 18, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what this would look like in John 16, when he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus was describing is what is being fulfilled here, and that is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind the truths of Jesus, the truths that have been revealed now and that his spirit has put within us. If, if you think back again to what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, in the last days, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. You and I have 
the teaching of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. We have it in God's word. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who tell us about the life and the deeds, the the ministry, the words of Jesus. We have it in the book of Acts. We have Christ establishing his church. We have the rest of the New Testament that, that helps build out the doctrine of who Christ is and how he is indwelling his church and, and working through the lives of individual believers. That, that word prophecy, often in the biblical context, has the idea of declaring something that God is foretelling. It is predictive, often in nature, throughout Scripture, but it is not exclusively predictive. And so when Acts 2.17 says that they shall all be prophesying, the, the broadest meaning of the verb to prophesy is to proclaim. It is to speak forth. The Spirit will be poured out, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They shall proclaim God's truth. And so the word to prophesy doesn't have to be predictive. It may simply mean speaking forth God's message, declaring his will and his counsel. For instance, Deuteronomy 18.18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The message there is not so much on foretelling the future, that you'll know him because he makes predictions. You will know him because he speaks what I give to him. He he speaks God's word. That is what God says. So what happened at Pentecost is God delivering his word by the power of his spirit through the speaking of his disciples. And that's why we're, we're told again that when they began to speak in these languages, they were proclaiming the mighty works of God. They weren't necessarily foretelling things in the future, but they were declaring what God has done, his mighty works, speaking forth his truth. And the gist of Acts 2.17 then is that other followers, certainly by application you and I, are also equipped by God's Spirit to declare his word, to speak forth his truth, not based on our intuition or our feelings or impressions, but rather to speak what we know to be the will and word of God as we declare his truth. The Spirit then enables that proclamation and empowers that proclamation so that it accomplishes what God intends for it to do. That's why we've called this Acts sermon series, Empowered Proclamation That Grows the Church, because it is the working of the Spirit through the proclaiming of God's Word that builds His church, that brings people to faith in Christ. God brings His power to bear through the proclamation of His truth. Now, what about the the visions and dreams that he mentions in this passage? During the formative years of the church, it is evident in Scripture that God used things like visions and dreams to communicate his truth. Paul's vision of the man in the region of Macedonia crying out for someone to come and preach to them will be recorded in Acts 16. It is a vision, Paul says, that he received at night. The Apostle John, as he sets out to give us the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 of Revelation, says he is in Patmos. He has been exiled there, and he has received this vision from God of what he is seeing, and he is recording that for us. There is, however, no command, no prescription in the New Testament for believers today to seek visions or dreams. 
There's nothing in Scripture that instructs us that we should be pursuing these kind of things, but rather Scripture is very clear. Ephesians 5.17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It, is. it is given to you. You need to meditate on it and understand it. In Colossians, Paul is praying for them, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We are called to know God's will, not to try to find it in visions and dreams because it has been revealed to us. That is essentially what Paul writes. He writes the letter to Jude near the end of the New Testament, even chronologically in time, one of the later letters, and he's addressing the threat of false teachers. And in Jude verse 3, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is but one faith that was delivered to the saints. He is speaking of that that body of truth, of sound doctrine that has been proclaimed to them. And he then uses that language of the faith as he writes to Titus and Timothy, pastors who are involved in, in shepherding flocks. And Paul frequently writes to them of having confidence in the words of the faith, but also warning against those who depart from the faith. And so there is clearly this revealed body of instruction about faith in Jesus Christ, about sound doctrine. The point being that with the New Testament, you and I have the completed word of God that we are called and equipped to proclaim. We have this faith once for all delivered to the saints. And in fact, in that that glorious passage in Ephesians 6 that talks about the the armor that the the believer is to put on, it speaks of the sword of the the Spirit, the, the offensive weapon of the Holy Spirit, which is what? It's the Word of God. God's Word is the thing that the Spirit has given us now by which we prophesy, by which we proclaim God's truth by which in the power of the Spirit we speak that which is made effective by His power. So there's no command to seek unusual ways to discover God's will. We have His will revealed to us in His Word. We need to be diligent students of it. We need to rest in the power of the Spirit, and we need to then declare what it is. Now, all of that to get to this point. When people start asking the big questions as these Jewish pilgrims did. What's happening here? What does this mean? What does Peter do? He goes to the word of God. He immediately directs them to the word of God for answers. Brothers, listen. God declares through the prophet Joel, this, what you're seeing, this is what God declares. Do you want to know what this means? Then let me show you from God's word. Peter is striving to help his audience, even even those who are mocking him at this point, to look at life through the lens of Scripture, through the, the words of the Bible, so that they would look there to learn the mind and will of their Creator. So that as they are trying to decipher what is happening around them, what the meaning of life is, what the meaning of this situation is, he is seeking to bring them back to God's Word. And that's what we must do. 
hold a high view of God that's rooted in the truths of Scripture so that we answer people by turning them toward the words of the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That we would show them that Scripture is sufficient and that it speaks to where they are in their fear, in their worry, in their uncertainty. And the, the point here is that all believers in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are empowered to do this because God has poured out His Spirit on us universally as the church, but individually as believers. We are filled and empowered by the Spirit of God to declare God's truth. And that's where Peter goes. He doesn't say, well, Here's, here's what I think is happening here. He doesn't try to interpret it. He rather reads to them from out of the prophet Joel and says, this is what this is. This is what God says this is. And he doesn't simply take them to Joel because what he does is he takes them to Scripture and to God's truth so that he can point them to the ultimate answer to their question of what does this mean. You see again in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved Jewish audience saying, yep, okay, that's what Joel says. And then look what Peter does. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Here's, here's where Peter is ultimately taking them. Here is, here is the answer to the question. Next week, the Sunday before Easter, Pastor Stewart's going to walk us through these verses here, 22, 23, as it looks at the, the suffering of Jesus Christ and how that is God's ordained plan. But I just want you to see this out of, out of particularly verse 22. Peter starts in the prophetic word of Joel to help them understand what they are witnessing. He takes them back to God's word so that they can understand what this pouring out of the Spirit is that they're experiencing. But he doesn't stop there. What he does is he shows them that the focal point even of Joel and the Old Testament prophets, the thing that Joel is, is, is looking forward to, that the prophets are looking forward to, is not just this. It is Jesus of Nazareth. Because what Joel said is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter is now saying to his Jewish audience who would have said, sure, you call on the name of the Lord, the, the great God Jehovah, and you put your faith in him. And Peter's saying, God has made his son Jesus to be the savior of his people. He is the one whom you must call on. Think about this again just within that context. This is easy for us to read. Imagine Peter preaching this to an audience to whom this must have at first seemed unimaginable. The, the, the one that you are to call on, the one by whom you may be saved, the only one by whom you may be saved, the one God the Father has sent to redeem his people is the one that you crucified, is Jesus of Nazareth. There is no true answer to the meaning of life apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, Peter is, is setting out to say this in this message, and he will come to it more clearly as he goes on. Jesus of Nazareth was not just one of some 
pantheon of divine figures who offers various wisdom and some kind of salvation experience, Jesus is the only name by which you must be saved. In fact, Peter in Acts chapter 4 will stand before the Jewish leaders and say exactly that. There is no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. His name alone saves. When this Pentecost audience will get to the end of Peter's message and we'll come to that later on in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says they, they're listening and they are cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit is at work. Remember, the Spirit's been poured out. It is the Spirit giving power to Peter's words. It's the Spirit who is now bringing conviction. Jesus said that in John 16. The Spirit comes to bring conviction to the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. As we're declaring the word, the Spirit's bringing conviction. And that's exactly what happens. And they are cut to the heart. And and they respond at the end of Peter's sermon by, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answers and he says, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing work that God's Spirit is doing, and and we need to be encouraged by Pentecost and by what the Spirit is doing here in Acts 2 as we live in the day that we are now, and remember that this same Spirit is at work through His people. When they are at a place The world sees something it can't explain, doesn't understand what's happening, and they ask for meaning. Peter takes them back to God's word by the power of his spirit and says, I have an answer for you. God speaks to this, and ultimately he points them to Jesus of Nazareth. By the power of the spirit, Peter directs that crowd to put all of their hope in a man who had been killed and buried seven weeks earlier. That crowd had not seen Jesus alive. As far as they knew, Jesus of Nazareth was dead and gone, some historical figure who didn't live up to expectations, who didn't lead a successful revolt, who didn't overthrow Rome, who seemed to do some miracles but was ultimately crucified. And here stands Peter saying, it's Jesus. You you want to understand this? You're trying to get the meaning of this? This is confusing to you? The answer is Jesus. The answer to your questions, what does this mean? Where do I find hope? Who do I turn to? What's God's plan? What do I do in the midst of this? Friends, this is not some third grade Sunday school This is the only answer we've got, and the answer is Jesus. This is the word of God saying, the answer is truly Jesus. He loves you, and he gave himself for you. And as Peter will go on to preach here, you must believe that Jesus Christ took your sin on himself, suffered God's judgment for your sin, died and rose again in order to save people for himself. Can't be Jesus on your terms. This isn't Jesus light. This isn't Jesus 2.0. This is Jesus as Peter will clearly preach him. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, now in flesh, coming according to the Father's plan to bear the judgment for our sins. This is Jesus crucified, buried, risen from the dead, never to die again. Jesus ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, the Lord who reigns over all of creation. This is Jesus 
who is returning to deliver his people and judge the world. That's what Peter wanted them to see. The simple question, what does this mean? Peter says, I want to show you, but you got to see it in God's word because this is the truth he declares. This is the truth that he's empowered you and I to give witness to. This is the hope of the world. In the most terrifying of times, there is hope and peace in him alone if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The answer is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you came to save a people, to give your life as ransom for sinners, to overcome sin and death, to defeat the the guilt, the penalty, the weight of sin that is over each and every person. You came to provide rescue from that. By dying as the sinless Lamb of God, the sacrifice on the cross for our sins. In shedding your blood, you poured that out for us, receiving God's, the Father's wrath in our place. Lord Jesus, we believe that you suffered in our place, that you then rose from the dead. And we, watching from home, watching wherever we might be on our phones. We are, we are worshiping you. We are exalting you. We are declaring to a lost and dying and confused and panicked world that there is no other hope for all of eternity than Jesus. That he alone is the perfect Savior sent by the merciful and abounding in steadfast love Father who longs to redeem sinners for himself. Father, empower your people to be bold during this time, to meditate on Scripture and to prayerfully and with the power of your Spirit declare these truths, declare your word that we might prophesy as we proclaim Scripture to people who need to hear it. And Father, in in all of the search for answers and wisdom and insights, may we continue to point people to the one true answer, the one who is the personification of wisdom, Jesus. Help us by your Spirit in a hopeless world to proclaim hope and peace through our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.